we are used to presidents leaving office and then leaving the public stage. And, the, and not only should we sort of not expect that from Donald Trump, there's really no sense that he would try to do that at all, and sort of quite the opposite. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Could Donald Trump launch a nuclear strike before leaving office? He could, and no one could stop him, writes Vermont journalist Garrett Graff. For months, Graff has been interviewing national experts and gaming out scenarios about what Trump might do in the 60 days before Joe Biden's inauguration and what he could do afterward. The possibilities include launching an attack, two destroying records, and going on what Graff calls a pardon palooza. Graff is a contributing editor at Wired and the former editor of Politico. His best-selling book, Raven Rock, is the basis of a series on Vice TV that debuted this week called While the Rest of Us Died. Garrett Graff, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks so much for having me today. Many people's worst case scenarios about what Trump might do after the election, and these are some of the things that you've written about, have been realized crying fraud, refusing to concede. But this week, you've written about one fear that trumps them all, pun intended, launching a nuclear war. So in your article for Wired, you say that it's entirely possible for Trump alone to launch nukes. Explain how one man could do that. Yeah. So this is um, a a relic of the early years of the Cold War, really. Um, and most Americans, I think, believe that the president, uh, it, it, the, that a second person is needed to confirm or authenticate a nuclear launch order. Um, you know, the vice president, the secretary of defense, the uh, attorney general or White House chief of staff or someone like that. But actually, the president uh, is solely responsible for the decision to launch a nuclear strike. And that is uh, always the way that it has been. And it dates back to a time when technology was primitive enough that there was a real fear that nuclear weapons could be lost if they were not used in the opening moments of an impending strike. And we've never gone back and reformed that process or cleaned it up to try to recognize that today there is no need for that level of power to rest with a single person without um, any, uh, any second voice or second opinion or double check that it, it, the order is logical. And we have... Uh, we've we've seen concerns about this in the past. Um, in the final days of the Nixon administration, as Watergate consumed the presidency, Defense Secretary James Schlesinger actually set uh, a, a informal policy with the military aides around the president that if any of them received a odd order or a launch order from the president, it should be verified with uh, Schlesinger or then Secretary of State Henry Kissinger before it was executed. Now, that is an entirely extra legal and extra constitutional 
procedure. There's no guarantee that it would be followed. There's no guarantee it would work. Um, and, you know, I think that and, and sort of everything that spirals out of that is one of the big concerns for the next 60 days or so when President Trump faces a moment when he has all of the power and authority of the presidency with nothing left to lose. I think, uh, I mean, this sort of evokes images of Dr. Strangelove here, you know, um, how seriously do the aides around Trump, uh, how much do they worry about this and have they worried about this throughout his presidency, the possibility that he would impulsively order a nuclear strike? So um, it, it's important to define this and, and sort of unpack that fear a little bit because there are, this isn't you know, necessarily a case where uh, you would, the, the biggest fear is just the president uh, you know, waking up one morning and uh, hitting the button out of anger or peak. Um, there, there's no actual button in the process, but that's sort of beside the point. That's the metaphor that everyone uses. Because there is one of the biggest dangers in this is simply the president's instability. And that's something that we have seen right from the start. And so it's not necessarily solely the idea of the president launching a, uh, an unprovoked first strike. It's that the president's instability and his anger and his imprecision with language and the truth could also help stumble the nation into uh, a, a catastrophic scenario or, or an impending nuclear exchange, which is what we almost saw happen during the early days of the Trump administration with North Korea, sort of the that spring of the fire and fury tweets where we saw, uh, you know, the president seeming to threaten North Korea with nuclear retaliation um, and you can imagine a scenario where Trump's bellicose rhetoric and his unstable mood uh, and general fits of anger uh, lead him to say things that cause others to escalate, that cause him to escalate, that cause them to fear uh, and, and potentially launch a preemptive nuclear exchange of their own. Um, you know, I'm talking here about uh, North Korea uh, or, or even Iran, um, which uh, may not have an operable bomb, but could have, uh, you know, could fear for its nuclear program uh, and impending strikes by Donald Trump and lash out uh, it militarily in ways against allies uh, locally in the Middle East, uh, regionally in the Middle East, um, or around the world. I mean, sort of remember one of the plots that we that the U.S. has uncovered 
and uh, and warned about this year was Iran's plan to assassinate the U.S. ambassador to South Africa this year in retaliation for the killing by the Trump administration of Iranian General Qassem Soleimani at the beginning of the year. Um, you know, 2020 has been the longest, weirdest march on record. And so it's hard to remember that the year actually began with us almost going to war with Iran, um, both through Trump's actions and then the weirdness and the fieriness of the rhetoric that followed the killing of Soleimani. Thinking back a year in Trump world is, uh, you know, most of us think we've had a year elapse just since election day or a year elapse just since yesterday. So uh, thinking back to an actual calendar year, it is uh, indeed hard to remember what we were worried about back then. Well, let's move it from the realm of uh, hypothetical uh, with the nuclear strikes, although, as you point out, it's not so hypothetical. He actually has this power. But talking about the next 60 days, um, we're already seeing the beginning of the purges at the Department of Defense and uh, perhaps elsewhere. What do you think are the most likely targets? Um, You've outlined some of them in your writing, but what do you anticipate for these next two months? Well, so it's hard to tell um, because we are still in a very weird phase of what is going to be a weird phase of Trump's presidency to begin with, where it's not clear that the president has really internalized the fact that he has only 60 days remaining in his presidency. Um, You know, as, as we sit here, Um, talking, uh, the president has not conceded. It's two weeks after the election, um, uh, 10 days or so after the networks have projected Joe Biden as the clear winner. Um, And formal transition exercises haven't actually started yet. And so that means that it is hard for the for us to really understand uh, what actions the president might take, uh, in part because we don't know when the president how, how much time the president will have to realize that he has lost and, and to really wrap his mind around it. The one that I think we are most likely to see is uh, something that I called in the Politico piece that I wrote about this subject, uh, pardon Palooza, which is. Um, the, the pardon, the presidential pardon is really the one of, if not the only part of the presidency that works the way that Donald Trump thinks the presidency should work, which is you sign one piece of paper, declare something, and it's done and over and implemented. And so I think we are likely to see all manner of pardons come out over the next couple of months, um, in part because this is already a period in a presidency when presidents normally take their most controversial actions. Presidents who respect democratic norms and uh, traditions, presidents who care about their historical legacy, care about their place in history, already take controversial and self-serving 
actions in the final days of their administration. Um, we saw George H.W. Bush pardon the key figures of Iran-Contra. We saw uh, President Bill Clinton pardon 140 people on his final day in office, including the financier Mark Rich, a scandal that dragged on actually well past the end of Bill Clinton's presidency. We saw uh, Barack Obama commute the sentence of Chelsea Manning in the final days of his presidency. Now, we know that as historical anecdotes, but Donald Trump has actually already taken some of the most controversial actions of his presidency around pardons, um, up to and including the uh, commuting the sentence of Roger Stone in the midst of his reelection campaign. So I, I think the bounds of what we could expect in the next 60 days from Donald Trump um, stagger the imagination. But I think you could sort of break it down into three buckets of pardons that we might see. The first being uh, people caught up in the Russian investigation, um, you know, people like uh, Paul Manafort, people like Roger Stone, um, as well as uh, sort of a second category of the president's political associates and potentially even his family. Um, because remember, pardons can be preemptive. And so he could uh, you know, wipe away the criminal investigations around Steve Bannon or Rudy Giuliani. He could uh, make it difficult for uh, the Biden administration or future U.S. attorneys or future U the Justice Department to investigate Don Jr. or Eric or Ivanka or Jared. Um, he could, uh, you know, even um, potentially pardon the Trump organization, his company, for its uh, it, its disputes with the IRS over taxes, um, you know we've never actually seen a corporate pardon before, um, but according to legal scholars, it seems possible that it could work. Um, how do you how do you pre you know pardon somebody for crimes yet committed? I mean, can well, well it's not for crimes yet committed. It's crimes that happened, the crimes that have been committed but not uh, adjudicated or prosecuted. Um, and this is actually what Gerald Ford did to Richard Nixon, um, which is Richard Nixon had not been charged in any sort of criminal indictment or complaint in, as he left office. And Gerald Ford forestalled the possibility of those indictments with a pardon up front. <laughs> There has been some question about whether Trump can and would pardon himself. Can he do that? So the short answer is he can. The longer answer is it's not clear it would hold up. Um, the, there is some Justice Department government precedence that says that a, a president cannot be their own judge and jury, and so cannot pardon themselves. Uh, what would hold up is, uh, the, is if Trump decides to step down early 
and Mike Pence uh, becomes president, you know, for as little as a few minutes or an hour or two on January 20th and does and issues a pardon to Donald Trump, uh, you know, before he leaves office as president. Um, it, it, it's also possible that Trump just tries to self-pardon and then lets the courts figure out later whether it's possible um, because it would be, uh, it would have to be adjudicated in court. Um, the, the way that a pardon actually technically works is you would be charged and then you would show up in court and say effectively, I have a get out of jail free card um, and here it is. And at, at that point, the court could rule whether it was valid, but e even a self-pardon uh, might raise the bar enough to discourage a prosecutor from trying to bring charges against Donald Trump in the first place. Mm. Um, all of that is a caveat though, to say all of the presidential pardon action, whether it's to uh, anyone that Trump knows, whether it's to himself, whether it's by Mike Pence, only deals with federal charges. So it would not stop in any way a state or local prosecutor from bringing uh, in, uh, charges uh, or investigating Donald Trump or his family or campaign associates after the fact, uh, after the presidency ends on January 20th. Which, which is, in fact, where the most aggressive investigations and potential prosecutions are coming from right now, the state of New York and the Manhattan district attorney. Um, exactly. I, I think, you know, it, the Letitia James, the attorney general in New York, um, seems to have a very clear uh, investigative uh, uh, structure underway uh, targeting the president and potentially his taxes. Um, and and, and there is nothing that the president can do pardon wise to get out of that. If you're just joining us, if you're listening to the Vermont Conversation, our guest in this uh, segment is Vermont journalist Garrett Graff. Uh, Garrett, let's turn to the uh, after January 21st. You've written that um, even starting in the first minutes, Trump's post-presidency would almost certainly be unlike anything America or the world has ever experienced. What do you imagine is awaiting us for the Trump post-presidency? Um, so, so again, I think that there are a couple of things, uh, there are a couple of buckets here worth thinking about. So first is uh, that this is a president who is going to be leaving office uh, atop a political movement. Um, you know, he's going to be leaving office in January having had more Americans vote for him than any uh, candidate prior to this election in the history of the United States. So he is already talking about the possibility of running again in 2024. Um, it, it, it seems clear Don Jr. might have his independent political ambitions, potentially Ivanka has political ambitions of her own. Um, and he is clearly going to want to try to figure out how to stay involved and stay uh, a, a leader of his movement, um, sort of the, the head of the MAGA megaphone. 
And it, whether that's through, you know, a, a media venture of his own, whether that's through radio talk shows, whether that's through continuing to do campaign rallies, you know, we're, we are used to presidents leaving office and then leaving the public stage. And, the, and not only do we, should we sort of not expect that from Donald Trump, there's really no sense that he would try to do that at all. Um, and, and sort of quite the opposite. Um, you know, you could even imagine, for instance, him holding a re-election rally, a, a 2024 re-election rally at noon on January 20th, you know, to counter-program Joe Biden's inauguration. Um, you could imagine him, for instance, uh, you know, as he builds out the Donald J. Trump presidential library, um, normally, those are um, uh, those are nonprofit educational institutions uh, that partner with the National Archives uh, to to build out those memorials to former presidents. Um, I, I think you should be thinking about the ways that Donald Trump would hope to profit from a presidential library, you know, a, a MAGA theme park, a Donald J. Trump, uh, Trump land, um, you know, akin to Graceland or Dollywood um, in Florida that could serve as a rallying point for his, uh, uh, his supporters, a, a rallying point for his political activities, for people interested in, uh, you know, getting his imprimatur, um, in, in their own races, you know, making a pilgrimage to to Trumpland uh, or, or Mar-a-Lago or wherever he settles, um, because it, you know part of this, remember, is Donald Trump is leaving office with about four hundred and twenty million dollars in debt, which is a scale of uh, profit required. Uh, that we have never actually seen in a former president. Um, you know, we're, we are used to former presidents making a lot of money, but when we talk about a former president making a lot of money, we're talking about dozens or scores of millions of dollars. You know, George W. Bush got $15 million for his, uh, for his memoir. Um, uh, um, Barack and Michelle Obama got $65 million for their memoirs together. That's a lot of money. That is more money than, you know, almost anyone in America could ever fathom having. At the same time, making 15 million, making 60 million, making double 60 million is not going to be anywhere close to the scale of the money that Donald Trump needs to make and earn in order to avoid outright ruin business-wise. Um, and so, you know, he's going to need to be looking to make hundreds of millions of dollars. And the only place where he's going to be able to make that kind of money is heading overseas and looking at business deals, hospitality deals, uh, development deals in countries that would welcome him and welcome his brand. That pretty quickly narrows the realm of the countries where he could be uh, considered popular. Um, you know, it, you're not going to see 
uh, you know, a new Trump hotel opening in the center of Berlin or Paris anytime soon. Um, and, and so you can sort of imagine Donald Trump playing the sort of uh, roving American ambassador role in countries uh, more like Turkey, um, more like uh, the Philippines, countries that uh, have sort of authoritarian tendencies, authoritarian strongmen leaders who uh, were welcomed and embraced by Donald Trump while he was president. Um, Erdogan uh, in, in Turkey, Duterte uh, in the Philippines, um, you know, potentially, um, you know, Bashar al-Assad in, in Syria. Um, you know, you could see the president heading to former Soviet republics to, to try to build out his business um, places where he might be welcomed uh, and where his sort of brand of business uh, would be seen as a vote of confidence in the nation's leadership. Um, up to and including, um, it, you know, it, it is not all that far-fetched to imagine Donald Trump showing up at the side of a basketball court in Pyongyang with Kim Jong-un Dennis Rodman style in the way that he is, uh, he was uh, welcomed into North Korea while he was president and, uh, and developed sort of this specific strange relationship with Kim Jong-un in a way that uh, you could sort of see Donald Trump showing up in Pyongyang as uh, Joe Biden tries to turn up the pressure on the North Korean regime and saying, hey, I can be friends with Kim Jong-un and Joe Biden can't. Like, look at how successful I am and my, how my policy is. Well, and also undermining uh, Biden's policy to North Korea. Exactly. And which has its double appeal. Uh, I want to talk for, uh, before we go about um, your uh, changing genres here and your TV life. Uh, this week, Vice TV debuted a new series, While the Rest of Us Die, that's based on your best-selling book, Raven Rock, the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die. Uh, tell us what the series is about. Yeah, so this is a, a series that I, I um, was lucky enough to get a chance to help executive produce this year um, based on the book Raven Rock that you mentioned, the history of the U.S. government's doomsday planning and emergency planning um, and, and sort of all of the strange stuff that would have developed uh, and unfolded during and after a nuclear attack during the Cold War. And so the TV series mixes uh, that history with a look at the modern political uh, and economic landscape uh, to ask the question about how well the US government is actually protecting the ordinary person in America. How, how sort of how strong is the safety net for ordinary Americans, even as we have poured uh, hundreds of millions and ultimately trillions of dollars into the government's emergency plans and advanced military weaponry that has very limited utility and very limited uh, ability to be useful in everyday life. 
has any of that, those millions and that preparation helped us now during the COVID crisis? So it, it's actually a little bit, um, uh, it, 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 a, a little bit the opposite, um, which is, you know, one of the big failures of the government has been the way that uh, the Department of Homeland Security has not risen to the challenge this year in the way that it was originally designed to do in this moment. Um, you know, after the uh, after 9/11, the U.S. created two major organizations in order to try to prevent the next 9-11, um, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and the Department of Homeland Security. And both of those departments uh, and agencies have been hollowed out and weakened under Donald Trump. Um, and it, you know neither of them had any Senate-confirmed leadership in the, their top jobs uh, during the first 100 days of the COVID-19 pandemic unfolding um, uh, at the end of last year and the beginning uh, of 2020. And you know, those agencies have an enormous responsibility for moments like this, and they have been uh, they have fallen far short of where they need to be in this pandemic. Finally, I just wanted to ask a little bit about how you do your work. You um, have blazed a path as a uh, consummate insider of Washington, but you are doing it from the far reaches of Vermont. So uh, how do you keep up your insights and your uh, you know, connections in Washington from where you live now in Vermont and where you grew um, up? It, 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 it's a it's a couple of different things. Um, one is um, you know I, I'm at this point you know ten or fifteen years into my career and have a good network of sources and um, uh, folks that I lean on for for stories around the country and and, and across Washington, uh, as well as a lot of the work. That I do is historical and archival, um, and you know the beauty of the internet is that there are all manner of government documents at your fingertips now in front of a computer in a way that it never would have been before. Um, and then you know one of the silver linings uh, of the pandemic this year has been that it has. Uh, made everyone in the world more comfortable with uh, telephone calls and, and Zoom calls and uh, video conferences. And so, you know, this year uh, I've been able to do a lot of reporting that I would have otherwise been on the road for um, right from my own desk here in Burlington. Do you still have any interest in uh, electoral politics and running for office in Vermont? No, I'm incredibly happy with the, the writing and the reporting that I'm doing now and have a, a very long time horizon of writing projects now stretching out before me. Okay. Well, Garrett Graff, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Vermont journalist Garrett Graff is a contributing editor at Wired and the former editor of Politico. 